Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. Richard Dawkins is the Billy Graham for atheism. He's an evangelist for unbelief in God and rejection of all religion. And he's written some best-selling books advocating that the world would be so much better off if we'd all become atheists. His bestseller is entitled The God Delusion, which tells you a lot about the content in which he makes such claims as taking children to Sunday school is child abuse. He, com he uh, claims in this book that religion, especially Christianity, is the root of all the problems in our world, that it's a disease that we need to get rid of. Now, what a lot of people don't know as he's being popularized is that even atheists who agree with him that there is no God criticize him for exaggeration in his books and for inaccuracies, for talking about things he knows nothing about. He's an Oxford biologist. In a real sense, he lives in a sheltered world, and he begins to talk about things really he knows nothing about. But he's written a new book called The Magic of Reality. And he says the purpose of this book is to inoculate children against religion, the disease of religion, to protect young tender minds against the disease of belief in God and Christianity. Well, in this really well-illustrated book, just a very well-done book, unfortunately, he opens with a definition of what reality is because he wants to say that reality is a lot more exciting and interesting than religion. So here's his definition, and you ought to pay close attention to it. Reality is what can be known by our five senses and by scientific instruments and models. Now, if you look at that definition of reality, you see it's a circular argument. He assumes his conclusion in his premise. But a lot of people are going to pass right over that and not understand it. He wants to assume that most people are unthinking and uneducated. Because you see, when he defines reality as only what can be known by our five senses and scientific instruments, he's limited reality to the material world, hasn't he? That's all that scientific instruments and our senses can detect, which begs the question, is there something beyond the material world? This same kind of circular argument, unfortunately, is made by some Christians. And here's the argument. I believe the Word of God because Jesus says it is the, the, the Word of God. I believe the Bible because Jesus submitted to the Bible. That's a circular argument. Because the very question is whether or not the words we have in the Bible that supposedly Jesus said 
he actually said. Because there are those who argue that these words were put into Jesus' mouth centuries later. You've got to answer that question. So that's a circular argument. It assumes its premise, uh, its conclusion in its premise. Well, Dawkins is part of this very hostile to Christianity movement that's being called the New Atheism. Really, there's nothing new about it, but they're being called the New Atheists, and they're writing a lot of books attacking Christianity in particular and the Bible. And that's why I'm doing this three-part series on Christianity Uncensored about the most controversial claims, the three most controversial claims that are actually crucial to Christianity. Because Christians, I don't want us to be shaken by what we see in the media and what we're seeing on the bestseller lists or the books. Maybe some of you are reading these books. You need to know the facts. And you need to know the facts so that you can give a reasonable, intelligent answer to those around you who are coming and say to you, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? It's just full of errors. It's full of just myths. Don't you know that? You need to know facts so that you can say, you know, I don't take the Bible just on faith. I take the Bible as true and as reliable because the facts point to that. This is so important. So today I'm talking about the second most controversial claim of Christianity, and that is the Bible is the written word of God and God's authority in all matters of behavior and belief. It's on your screen. That is a, a tenet of faith, a doctrine that is central to Christianity, that the Bible is the written word of God and God's authority in all matters of behavior and belief. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. That's why anyone who claims to be a Christian must surrender to God's word and what God says is right and wrong. Because it's God's word. And here, here is, let me give you a test of how you know if you're walking with Christ or not. How do you know that you're really walking with Christ, that you're not a Christian atheist? You know, a Christian atheist is a person who believes in Christ but lives as if he doesn't, isn't there. Here's how you know whether or not you're a spiritually growing person and you're actually walking hand in hand in Christ. Today you're going to do some things just because the Bible says so. Tomorrow you're going to do some things just because the Word of God says so. That's what it means to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus later in John chapter 14, three times, like in verse 21, says, If you love me, you will obey me. So how do you know if you love Christ? Today I did some things just because the Word of God says so. Surrender 
is spirituality. So let's look at this word, God breathed, this huge claim the scripture makes. Well, the literal Greek word is theonoestos. Theo, we get theology from it. It's, that means God, the Odyssey, parents of God. God, nuestos, means breath. So in English, we get pneumatic tools. Those of you in construction may have pneumatic tools. Those are tools that are powered by, driven by breath, air, air tools. That's this word. And what it says is that the biblical writers were breathed into by the breath of God, just as air drives pneumatic tools. And therefore, the content of the Bible has its origin in God, God's breath. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, this is one to write down and think about, no prophecy of Scripture ever came by the prophets. Now, I need to clarify something. When the Bible says prophet, it means preacher. So men, some of the couples, groups, we've studied the life of Elijah. Elijah gave very little predictions of the future, like the rain part he gave. Mainly, he was preaching the word of God to Ahab and Jezebel. So, by the preacher's own interpretation. But men spoke from God, and they were carried, or you could translate this word, driven along by the Holy Spirit. Now, these writers spoke from God. What they, the content that they wrote was from God, is the claim. The Greek word we translate moved or carried or driven along, those are three different translations that are given in various versions. It all means the same. Moved or driven along. It um, is really crucial because what Peter is saying is the content was driven by the breath of God. Let me unpack that. This word that's used in this verse in Peter is used in Acts 27, verse 15, when the wind is described on the Mediterranean Sea as taking control of the Roman ship, sailing boat, vessel, that Paul was a passenger on being taken to Rome as a prisoner. That's the word that's used here. Let me read the verse to you. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it, and we were driven along. Could not head into the wind. In other words, the wind was overpowering the ship, and they no longer had control of the destination, the direction of that ship. They gave way, and it was driven along by the wind. The ship was under the direct control of the wind. It did not cease to be a sailboat, but it ceased to have control of the direction it was going to go. That's the claim. 
the huge claim that the Bible's making in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. The Holy Spirit, these men wrote in their own vocabulary, but they were driven by the wind, the breath of God, in terms of the content that was not under their control. That's why you hear us in this church call this Bible the Word of God, though written by men. The Word of God. And on your screen I unpack this. And therefore it must be God's authority about what is right and wrong in behavior and belief. Behavior and belief. If the Bible is the Word of God, the breath driven by the breath of God, then to disobey it is to disobey God and to be out of fellowship with God. It's to be out of fellowship with God. This book defines what is right and wrong. And that's why spiritual growth is not how much knowledge you accumulate through Bible studies or intelligence or other things. Timothy began this chapter by saying, they know a lot, they keep learning, but they don't change. They're not surrendered to the Word of God. So spirituality has to do with obeying the Word of God, or you're out of fellowship with God. Now, this is so important, because I want you to know, I will say this later, this church, its leadership, is under the authority of the Word of God. And it doesn't matter what the government says about faith and behavior, or what any um, group, even our denomination, would say about behavior. Finally, the only authority in our life about belief and about behavior is the Word of God. And anything contrary to the Word of God is not right. That's this church. Now, thoughtful people have honest questions that deserve answers. Like, isn't the Bible full of errors? Wasn't its content changed over the centuries? You know, the Da Vinci Code popularization. Those are legitimate questions that thinking people ought to ask and get answers to. Because what, I keep saying this, the Christian faith is not the Kierkegaardian leap into darkness. I just believe because I believe. No. Faith has its reasons. Truth is on the side of faith. So what is truth? If the Bible is not trustworthy, if it has been changed, then we don't know for sure what Jesus said. And all he said about how to be saved and how he said about eternity and all he said about the nature of God being loving and good and forgiving, we don't know that now if the Bible's unreliable. Because you sure can't look to nature and find a loving God. <laughs> nature's unforgiving. Nature's cruel. It's brutal. No, you can't look at creation and say, oh, God is so loving and forgiving. The only place you get that is in this book. 
You don't get it from Hindu scriptures. You definitely don't get it in the Quran. The only place you hear about Father God and loving God is in the Bible. The Quran has more than 100 names for God. Not one of them is Father. Not one of them is loving and forgiving. Only here. So, how do we know Jesus really said these words? I'd like to share with you some facts that Dawkins will not tell you. And it's because he's locked up in his little laboratory in Oxford, immersed in biology, a very sheltered life. Dawkins has never actually read mythology. He knows next to nothing about archaeology because it's not his field. And trust me, he has no idea about biblical prophecy. He not only claims the only reality is material, which I've shown is a circular argument with no proof whatsoever. Dawkins never considers the facts I'm going to share with you today. Never mentions them because he doesn't know them. He never argues against them. Well, the first fact is our evidence that the Bible is God's revelation is the science of archaeology. Archaeology. I spent two summer sabbaticals at Hebrew University in Jerusalem studying archaeology and um, history. And one of my favorite places to go to pray during the week and to meditate was the Pool of Bethesda, right near the temple. Now, what's really interesting about the Pool of Bethesda is skeptics says, said until a few years ago, it didn't exist. It's pure fiction. Until archaeologists dug it up. It was under 70 feet of debris, covered from when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and leveled it. It was lost. No, it didn't exist, skeptics said. See, the Bible's wrong again. And then archaeologists dug it up. And it was the doubters that were wrong. Another example is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who sent Jesus to the cross. No, he never existed. Do you know there is no mention of him in, in Roman literature? Because he was in a backwoods, backwater country named Israel, very insignificant. He was really a, a low person in the hierarchy of Rome. He's never mentioned. Skeptics said, no, he didn't exist. Again, it's pure myth. Until at Caesarea, where he had his palace, they undug the stone with his name on it. And the stones don't lie. In my tour, we always go to the Israeli Museum. Because there the stone is and we stand before it. Just as we go to the pool of Bethesda and we meditate upon Jesus' healing of the paralytic. But mostly we meditate on the fact, see the Bible is reliable. Here it is. Here it is. It's not only Pontius Pilate, but people until just about 15 years ago said David was a mythical figure. He never existed. David He's central to the Old Testament. He supposedly wrote the Psalms. No, he didn't exist. Until they dug up the stone. The dynasty of King David. 
You can see it in the Israeli Museum. In Daniel 5, the Bible says Belshazzar was the ruler of Babylon. Historians say, no, Belshazzar wasn't. It was Nabatitas. Clear contradiction. Until archaeologists dug up three stone tablets that told us that there was a time, Nabatinus was the king of, of uh, Babylon. But for a few years, he took his army out to patrol the borders against invaders. And while he was those years out there with his army, he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to be king in his absence. Nelson Gluck said, it may be stated categorically, categorically that no archeological discovery has ever contradicted the Bible, only the critics of the Bible. In my classes at Hebrew University, all atheistic professors, one day, I'll never forget this, one of them said, I've got to admit that when we start to search for an ancient site, we first go to the Bible because it's reliable and gives us indicators of where to begin to dig. Why not believe it then? I want to answer that question in a few minutes. Elazar Oren is perhaps the most respected archaeologist in the world today. He teaches at the University of Negev. He's an atheist. But in an interview not long ago, he was asked this question. What kind of grade would you give to the Bible for, historic, for historical accuracy? This atheist said, and I quote, A++. Then why not believe it? I want to talk about that. Don't let people tell you the Bible is full of errors. That is an uneducated statement. We have out in the lobby, I want to show you this book by Josh McDowell, which has this and much more evidence about the accuracy of the Bible. Secondly, the fact of the eyewitnesses still alive when the New Testament uh, was being written and the fact of embarrassing information in the New Testament proves it's accurate history and reliable. The claim is often heard that the Bible is full of legends and myths. But what are the facts? Well, it's very important to note that the Gospels, you know, the, the books about Jesus' life, except for the Gospel of John, which was written in 90 AD during Diocletian's terror of Christians. The other three, and the letters of Paul, were circulated within 35 years of Jesus' life. We know for a fact that the Gospels, three of them, and Paul's letters were written before 70 AD. How do we know that? Because it is a fact that Paul was beheaded by Nero. How do we know that? Well, he writes about this in the, the book of Philippians. Chapter 4, he, he's in Nero's dungeon. And he's talking about Christians have penetrated Nero's own home. If that wasn't true, 
the enemies of Christianity would have laughed that book out of circulation. Now, what does that tell us? Well, we know on June 9th, A.D. 68, Nero committed suicide. That's a fact. Which means all of these writings of Paul had to have been written before Nero's suicide. When we go to Rome, we're going to visit the prison in which both he and Peter were held, the Maritime Museum, right there by uh, the triumphal arch and all the other wonderful things in Rome. So, we know all of these books were in circulation during the lifetime of people who were eyewitnesses during Jesus' lifetime. This is incredibly important because if what we read in the Gospels, Jesus didn't say and didn't happen, the Pharisees and Pliny and all the other Roman enemies of Jesus would have laughed Christianity off the earth. But they never attack the stories about Jesus and his claims. They attack Christianity in other ways, but not in terms of historical accuracy. Take Mark 15, verse 21. Listen to this. Mark says that the man who helped carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha it's on your screens, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, if he were writing myth, he wouldn't have put these two names in there. Because people were alive and knew these two. He's saying to them, you don't believe me? Go talk to these two. They'll tell you what I'm saying is so. They'll vouch for it. You find this all through the Bible. Go talk to these people I'm naming. So in John chapter 8, it's a, this is another huge fact we need to know about mythology. Mythology doesn't give historical detail. That only happens later in 19th century English literature. It's a literary invention that's not invented to the 19th century. That's just common knowledge. So we read about the resurrection appearance of Jesus that... Jesus said, fish on the other side of the boat. They caught 153 fish. That kind of detail you don't find in mythology. In John chapter 8, you find when the woman's caught in adultery, we're told that Jesus bent down and doodled in the dirt. We're not told what he wrote, just that he doodled in the dirt. It has nothing to do with plot development, nothing to do with character development. It's just a detail. That kind of writing, if it were fiction, fictional writing, is not till the 19th century in British literature. This last uh, summer, I spent my time, my sabbatical at Oxford University, studying Greek myth. And what really amazes me is people say, oh, the Bible's just full of myth. Well, tell me what myths have you read? <laughs> I mean, have you read Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey? Have you read Aeschylus? Do you know anything about Hesod? He's the earliest Greek myth writer. 
And he's the one who tells about the myth of the creation of the earth and the myth of the creation of man and women. Do you know anything about this? Oh, I love this myth. Hesed writes, he says, that in the beginning, the earth was just male. There were no women created. And then he said, Prometheus, you've heard of this mythical figure, stole fire from Zeus. He tricked Zeus. Imagine this, tricking a god, the greatest of the gods. He tricked Zeus. And he got fire and he gave it to men as a gift. And Zeus was so angry that he punished men by creating women. <laughs> I love this myth. You know what the first woman's name was? Pandora. You've heard of Pandora's box? Out of her curiosity, she opened up the box and all this evil came out on the earth and everyone suffered. See? He says in this myth that because Zeus was tricked, Zeus gave a compensating evil. He says Aphrodite created her shapely, created her with a beautiful face, and other gods poured charm into her and sexual prowess, but she was evil. Love that myth. <laughs> How many myths have you read? I've read myth, and people who've read myth Oh, no. These are not mythical stories. They're totally different. Not even near. The other compelling fact is that the Gospels are full of embarrassing information, damaging to the credibility of leaders within the church. Let me give you an example. The first witnesses of the resurrection were women. In the first century world, both in Rome, Greece, and in Israel, women were not allowed to testify in court. I'm just reporting history. Because they were seen as inveterate liars and untrustworthy. The last thing you would do if you were inventing a story about the resurrection is make women the witnesses. No, you would have had upstanding businessmen from Jerusalem come in and see the empty tomb. Not women. Why women? It's the way it happened. Jesus was elevating women even at the resurrection. Or why would disciples make up an account of Jesus in the last night in Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, asking God if he could get out of dying on the cross? You know, let this cup pass from me. Don't you see? That made him look weak to Jews in the first century. What kind of savior would do that? And why would he ever, they ever make up or invent as fiction the part on the cross where Jesus cries out to God his Father, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Don't you see that was sort of embarrassing information? Meaning Jesus was weak-willed. At the time, in that period when there were Sicarii and there were zealots who were ready to die for Israel, and he wants to get out of it? And the disciples, the eventual leaders of the church, impossibly slow-witted and dull, cowardly who abandoned Jesus and run away. And Peter, do you remember this? Peter, in his third denial, curses Jesus. <laughs> How would you like that on your record for the next 50 years as you tried to lead the church? 
Why would you ever invent that? You didn't. That's what happened. And you put it in the story because that's what happened. You read the Quran, you read the Book of Mormon, you read the Hindu scriptures, you don't find anything like this. The third fact that points to the Bible being the Word of God revealed is fulfilled prophecy. Did you know there's no other religious book in the world that has prophecy in it? Not the Quran, not any Hindu scriptures, the Bahagita. You don't find prophecy in any other religious book. That alone makes the Bible unique among religions. There are more than 2,500 prophecies, and all of them have been fulfilled except for about 500 that all have to do with the end of time. It's coming. Did you know that a thousand years before the crucifixion was even invented by the Persians, David in Psalm 22 and Psalm 34 describes the crucifixion of Jesus? How in the world do you describe the crucifixion of Jesus when it hasn't even been invented? Because God breathed into these scriptures. God knew. Isaiah 44 verse 28 predicts Cyrus would conquer Babylon. That's 150 years before Cyrus was born. Only the God who's in control and sovereign, all-knowing, all could write that. Did you know there are more than 332 prophecies about Jesus? What city he'd be born in, what his ministry would be like, that he'd die, how he would die, how he'd rise from the dead, how his followers would betray him. In exquisite detail, 332 prophecies, all which were fulfilled by Jesus. Critics will say, well, those prophecies were written centuries after he lived. They are after the fact. That just isn't factual. Let me tell you why. There came a period in the 3rd century, 4th century BC that Jews no longer could speak Hebrew. Greek was the language of the world. They could speak Greek, but not Hebrew. So they couldn't read the Old Testament. And what happened was, scholars, Jewish scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew text into Greek. It's called, it's on your screen, the Septuagint. Sept coming from 70. 70 scholars did this. Sept, they translated into Greek. What's that mean? The content of the Old Testament was fixed in 250 B.C. We know it hasn't changed because we can go to the Greek translation and compare them. It was fixed. Which means all these prophecies about Jesus were written at least before 250 B.C. See, people don't know these facts when they say, oh, they're written after the fact and put in the Bible has changed. That just isn't true. On your screen is a picture of Josh McDowell's book. We have it in the lobby because it's such a good book on the evidence and I recommend it. The fourth fact is that you'll want to know is that the Dead Sea Scrolls and 24,000 manuscripts prove scientifically 
that the Bible is the Word of God, and it hasn't been changed. The Da Vinci Code popularizes this idea that the Bible was altered centuries after Jesus' death for political reasons. But the scientific facts, what are they? Do you know, when we talk about ancient literature, we have very few copies, like Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have 10 copies, the earliest of which is a thousand years after his death. Thousand year gap. Plato's Republic, we have 12 copies of Plato's Republic. Again, a thousand years is the earliest copy after his death. But nobody questions the reliability of those texts. My old prof at Princeton, Dr. Bruce Metzger, who is a world-class ancient manuscript scholar, says we have 5,664 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. They go back within a few decades of his life, not a thousand-year gap like the other books. And in total, those are complete manuscripts, in total, total, with partial manuscripts, we have more than 24,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Does that matter? Oh, yes. You know what it means? These are written in Syria and all over the Mediterranean world, different families of Greek manuscripts. You can take them all together and compare them. Do they jive with one another? Are there contradictions? Because if they jive with one another... That means the Bible hasn't been changed. And in fact, there's less than a 1% discrepancy in the text, and it all has to do with insignificant matters like prepositions and adjectives. Well, what about the Old Testament? It used to be that the oldest copy of the Old Testament was from 900 A.D. Given the fact that the end of the Old Testament writings was 400 B.C., that means there's a 1,300-year gap, at least at the minimum. But then, in the 50s, 1950s, uh, 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered at Qumran, where the Essenes had a community. That's another place we go to see the Dead Sea Scroll caves that they were found in by accident. Those Dead Sea Scrolls that you can see in Jerusalem go back to, were written, carbon dated, 200 B.C. 200 B.C. Carbon dated. We're talking science here. Do you know what that means? We had an 1100 leap back. 1100 year leap back back in time in manuscripts. So we could compare those from 200 BC to 900 AD. And what did we find? Every book of the Old Testament except Esther is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what did we find? They're the same. There's no change. That's what bothers me about the Da Vinci Code so much. No, the Bible, people who say the Bible is full of errors, they can say it's a myth, they can say it's been changed through the years, but not on the basis of scientific fact. The next time someone says this to you, ask them what errors they're thinking of. If they tell you it's full of myths, ask them if they've read what myths they have read.
given these facts, why is it that so many people around us criticize the Bible like this? And why is it that so many churchgoers will even say the Bible's full of errors and don't take it seriously? Well, Aldous Huxley was a devotee of Darwin, and he really promoted Darwinism. And I'm going to quote why he says he objected to the Bible and wanted Christianity destroyed. Here's his quote. We objected to the Bible because it interfered with our sex life. That's history. Do you know it's been written? If the Bible hadn't said what it says about sexuality, a lot more people would be believers. That's true. He rejected the Bible not on the basis of the facts, just because it interfered with my personal life. You see, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The problem with the Bible is it contradicts us. And therefore, we've got to have an out. We've got to have a way to discard it. Freud said that belief in God is only wish fulfillment. We wish heaven was true. We wish there's a loving God out there, so we invent it. That's what Freud said. Do you know what the real wish fulfillment is? That the Bible isn't true, it's full of errors. I wish that was true, because if it is, it won't interfere with my life. And so we make up the myths about all these errors and the myths in them. The only myths that are circulating right now are the myths people are saying about the unreliability of the Bible. The facts are the Bible's reliable and it is the Word of God. People can reject this book, but it's a form of self-abuse. Because God's word is the best class you can take on how to have a happy marriage, how to have a happy life. I'm telling you, when the Bible says, and you won't find this in other books, forgive as Jesus has forgiven you, the unforgivable, that's liberty. That's the only way you find peace and disconnect from what people have done to you. It's the only way. You know, I read Proverbs 18, verse 24, the tongue has the power of life and death. Ah, that convicts me. Man, I read that and I say, oh, I want to have control over my mouth. You know, I read in the Bible, don't gripe. I was a champion griper. I forgot my green wristband. I'm working on it. The Bible changes me for the better and gives me liberty and abundant life. But I got to ask you, what's the Bible say that you're just not doing? But God is good through and through. You're, it's a form of self-abuse. Every commandment of God is to set us free and to bless us. And every commandment of God is God saying what he would do if he were in our situation. We are keeping ourselves from liberty and blessing because we're not surrendered to the authority of the word of God. The Bible talks about tithing. No, I don't want to do that. 
Bible talks about your tongue and don't gossip. Oh, no, I'm going to still gossip. And we create division and pain. Self-centered, materialistic, envying, wanting what other people have. And we wonder why we're not in abundant life. Not until we surrender by faith that whatever God says is good. It's by faith I obey. I don't believe this Bible by faith. I believe it because of the facts. But when I come across tough commandments, it's by faith that God is good. I'm going to do it. I ask you, what did you do yesterday just because the Bible says so? And it was against your human nature. Where do you need to surrender to the Word of God? I can say for this church and this staff and the Board of Elders, this Bible is the Word of God for us, and it is our only and final authority in all matters of what is right and wrong in both behavior and belief. And not the government or any other organization is ever going to trump what the Word of God says to us because we want to walk with Him, no matter what it costs. How about you? That's this church, I thought you'd just want to know. I'm gonna pray for us. I just said that at the end, because I want you to know what kind of church you're a part of if you become part of this church. Pray with me. Lord, that was a complex message. But I, I just pray that by your spirit, you're changing our hearts and you're equipping us in this world that's so hostile to you. I pray for us as a people that you've brought to mind things that we've heard in messages or seen in Bible studies and we just said no to it. That today before this service is over in three minutes, we'll change our mind and say, Lord, I surrender to you because I love you. And I want abundant life. I want to walk with you. What is that for you? What has he brought to your conscience that you finally just need to do it because the word of God says so? Amen. Well, that was another practical message from Dr. Mike. If you live in our area, why not come to in-person worship at one of our three locations Sunday? Hearing Dr. Mike live is so much more powerful, so we hope you can come. <laughs>